0: Hey folks, uh, it's time for us to get started. Welcome to those of you that are joining us live on one of our streaming platforms or you're watching this or um, podcasting it later sometime in the week. We're glad that uh, however you are joining us today that you were able to do so. We look forward to spending the next hour or so together. I wanna open us in prayer and then I'm gonna introduce our subject for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to be together Tonight, um, whether we're here in person or those that have gathered to join with us online, uh, we're grateful for that opportunity. Uh, We pray today, God, for um, those in our church um, just in the last couple of days uh, who have uh, gone on to be with you. Uh, We're we're grateful for uh, the faith that uh, Uh, That Joe demonstrated to us, that Miss Valerie demonstrated to us, and and God, while it's uh, sad for us to mourn the loss of uh, beloved friends and uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as the Apostle Paul writes, we do not mourn as those with no hope. And so we're thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus, and we're thankful for uh, both that uh, Joe and Valerie shared that hope. It was clearly a testimony in their lives. And, um, and we, we pray for their families uh, as they walk through these, uh, through these days as well. God, would you bless our time that we spend together now over the next hour, uh, thinking about how we share the gospel, particularly in, this, uh, in today's subject, with, with people that are likely in our families, that are likely living next door to us, um, those who uh, we see regularly will likely fit in this group, many of them. And so would this be challenging to us uh, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, we ask. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so this is our second week in uh, our series, Discovering How We Proclaim the Gospel for All. And last week was a refresher week for us. I try to do that every uh, year, year and a half, take us back through the three circles uh, gospel presentation, talking about how we have gospel conversations with people, how we can transition into a gospel presentation, and then how we call those people to um, a real moment, uh, a, a real moment in their lives, where they say, "Yes, I am of the faith," or "No, I am not," and they at least come to grips with um, the reality of their broken world and and have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And that's as far as we can go with people. Our desire is to see people saved, but I've never saved anyone, neither of you. Uh, only the power of God can bring about new life in people's uh, hearts and bring them from darkness to light. But we, God uses us to, to proclaim his good news. And so uh, that is our mission. And so I hope last week was helpful for you um, what we're going to be doing now, we're really going to be transitioning uh, towards our main subject that we'll consider for the next several weeks, and that is what, are, what, are, what different groups around us require us to think well, or to maybe even think critically, and to look at ourselves and ask, am I prepared to share the gospel with this kind of person? Now, some of these weeks, we're going to look at one very specific type of person, one very specific religion or another or worldview or way of thinking. In some weeks, it's going to be categories of people, um, certain demographic age groups, certain um, uh, other markers that may make people, put people in a unique position when we go to share the gospel with them. But I wanted to start really in a way that I think is going to be the most beneficial to us. While we are going to have weeks where we deal with uh, Islam, Eastern religions, um, Gen Gen Y, the the current generation kind of coming up through adolescence right now. Uh, And those are are all going to be helpful because you may be exposed at some point in your life to somebody that uh, believes some of those things. The, The subject we're going to deal with today is cultural Christianity. And the reason I wanted this to be the first one we deal with is because I think it's going to be the most likely to be some, to, to be impactful for you. Um, as I said in my prayer, I would be really surprised if there's anybody in this room who doesn't have someone in their life that will fall into one of these categories. I'm actually going to give, um, six categories today, uh, kind of six different ways that we can think about cultural Christians People who may claim Christianity but, but aren't uh, in, any, in any real sense, any biblical sense. And you know who these people are. When I said we we're going to talk about cultural Christianity, you thought of somebody. Somebody in your family, somebody on your block, somebody in your work, somebody that's been important to you in your life. You, you, you likely thought of someone because you, you know who these people are. Um, I know I've said this um, from the pulpit and I say it often in our Connect class when we're talking about. The Tears of Doctrine. Um, If you go out to like Walmart, Harris Teeter, Bojangles, stand at the door. And as people come in, if you ask them in Suffolk, Virginia, are you a Christian? My guess is 80% will say yes. Now you can go to other parts of the world. You travel south of here, not too far probably. And you're going to get to 85%, you're going to get to 90%, you're going to get 95%. I mean, you you get further and deeper and deeper into the Bible Belt, and that's what you're going to get. You're going to get 80, 85, 90% of people saying, well, yes, I'm a Christian. But if you then asked some extremely basic, I'm not talking about detailed theological questions. I'm talking about basic questions like, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way for someone to be saved? That percentage is going to drop off precipitously. You're going to get into the 60%, 50%, 40%. People are going to start hemming and hawing really quickly over what we would consider and affirm as a congregation, first-tier doctrine. And we define first-tier doctrine as doctrines that make someone a Christian now someone can call themselves a Christian it's a free country you do want to do right but to say that someone that we would affirm someone is a Christian this is someone that is affirming basic truths of Christianity like there is one God There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. The reason that we need him is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the death of Jesus is in our place and that the only way to salvation is through faith in him, right? These are basic core principles of Christianity that if someone denied it, regardless of what they said to be true about themselves, we would say you have a misunderstanding of what the Bible says it means to be a follower of Christ and to be categorized in our minds as a a Christian. And so what that means is we have this, this large swath of our population who would call themselves a Christian but would deny some very basic central Bible truths about what does it really mean to be a Christian Right? And so, and I, of course I'm making these numbers up, right? But I think they're probably pretty close. So I know our community fairly well. So if it is 80% down at the, you know, doors of food line over here, people walk in that would say if eight and 10 would say, yes, but yes, I'm a Christian, but only five in 10 would be able to say, yes, I've, you know, profess faith in Jesus Christ. I've been born again. I, you know, I, Jesus's death was in my place. Like those kind of basic questions. If that goes down to 40 or 50%, I mean, then you're talking about, you know, three or four people out of every 10 in our community right here are walking around thinking they are a Christian and they are not. That's not to say, that's not to even address the 20% or more, I don't know, you know, again, these are round figures, but 20% or more who are walking around that know they're not a Christian. We're going to address those people in coming weeks. But it's the ones who are in our lives, the ones who are on our blocks, the ones who work next to us that, that would, if you were to ask, are you a Christian? Sure, I'm a Christian, but they're really not. There's no evidence of belief. There's no right understanding of even core basic doctrines that, that someone needs to understand. These things that we outlined last week in the gospel, right? That Jesus died in your place so that you could be made right with God, these very basic things. Um, So what I'm going to be teaching tonight uh, almost exclusively comes from this book. I like to give uh, credit. This has been a big conversation in Southern Baptist life here recently is how often pastors are giving credit when they pull things from places. I always try to do that as best that I can, but I want to be really clear. Um, this book is called The Unsaved Christian. I often make recommendations uh, on Wednesday nights anyway. This is a great book. And the reason I say that almost everything I'm going to say tonight exclusively comes from this book, number one, is because it does. Um, and number, number two, um, this really is, I think, the best work on the subject. There are other works on this subject. There are other good works, other books that I have. But I don't think anybody's as clear as, as uh, Dean is. This is uh, Dean and Sarah. He is... Uh, pastors, uh, city church in Tallahassee, Florida. It's a Southern Baptist church. Uh, he's on our Southern Baptist executive committee. Um, and, uh, Dean writes really, really clearly. And if, if some of the stuff I talk about tonight, you say, I want to know more because we, I could probably do a whole fall semester just on these six things tonight. Plus two, he actually talks about eight. There are eight different kind of versions of cultural Christianity. Now, uh, two of them I'm saving for a later week because I actually think they fit better at a different time um, when we're going to talk about generational Catholicism, which is one of his chapters in here, and uh, mainline Protestantism in the United States. I'm going to have another week where I just deal with them because there are some other questions and some nuance that we need to be able to have that I'm not going to have time for today. The rest of these, I think, fall squarely in um, the category of cultural Christian and Dean does a really, really good job of kind of outlining who these people are. Um, he tells some good stories that makes, I think it helpful for us to be able to identify people in our own lives with, with, um, with some of these different categories. But what I really appreciate and the reason I'm, I'm just exclusively using this work today is because Dean does exactly what I'm trying to do over the course of the next eight weeks and that's not just tell you these people exist. For instance, I don't want to just tell you that Muslims exist or I don't want to just tell you that, you know, Eastern religion people exist or that certain demographics exist in our community. I don't want to just tell you these people exist, but I want to equip you, which is why we call it equip, right? I want to equip you for gospel ministry, I equip you to proclaim the gospel and answer questions and get to, and he actually has a section in each one of these chapters about how do we get, what well, he calls them gospel conversation starting points which is exactly what we talked about last week, right? Um, So what I've done is I've taken this this stuff that Dean's presented here. Of course, this is just going to kind of be a survey, an overview, because I'm going to go through six of them really quickly. And he wrote a whole book on eight of them. Uh, So highly recommend the book. You can buy it on Amazon, Christianbook.com. Dean Inserra, I-N-S-E-R-R-A, The Unsaved Christian, which obviously is an oxymoron, Right? So we would, we would say maybe Christian should be in quotes there. If someone's unsaved, they're not a Christian. But these are those people in our community, people in our culture, who think of themselves as Christians but don't profess the core tenets of what it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And so what I've tried to do is just take six of those eight, and again, we're going to move two of them to another week, and, and, and take some of the, the high-level, just boil-it-down bullet points and us in the next uh, 45 minutes or so address each one of these, okay? And he does a really good job of, of presenting them, And so I'm going to use his language um, to categorize these because I think it's it's really helpful. So each one of these, again, is, uh, is, is Dean's words. It's the way that he categorizes cultural Christianity. So first, let me just just top-level cultural Christianity for you. Again, these are people who would likely say if you just asked, Are you a Christian? they would say yes. But if you were to push in, they would, they would not be able to, they would not certainly be able to explain what it means to be a Christian in any bi- orthodox biblical sense. And if you were to ask some follow up questions, they would very likely uh, fail the test of uh, someone who, who would know very basic things to, to, to know when it comes to Jesus. But Because Christianity has been so ingrained in the culture of Western civilization, not just America, but Western civilization as a whole is very dependent upon Christianity. But American culture in specific has Christianity in much of its founding, not all of it, by the way, but much of its founding. And and the church maintained a lot of influence in American culture uh, up until at least recently. The church maintained a lot of influence, and so we 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 have raised generation after generation in uh, not only Western civilization but American culture uh, to idealize certain aspects of Christianity. So what may make one person a cultural Christian, someone that would affirm Christianity but not actually pass the test of being a Christian uh, in a biblical sense, what may make one person in that category uh, be put in that category may be different for someone else, which is why I think Dean's uh, eight categories, and again, we're going to deal with six of them tonight, are helpful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through each category in four parts kind of who these people are, give you kind of a profile of them, what kind of gospel, where they are confused about the gospel, how they've kind of mixed the gospel, replaced the gospel with something else, what some of the gospel conversation starting points that Dean gives in the book, and some of these, uh, many of them are his, some of them are, are things that I've thought through. And then finally, what the gospel remedies are. So how, where could we actually take someone in the scriptures or in Christian theology and say, here's where you've, here, here's where you've missed this. I wanna call you to something greater. I wanna call you to true uh, faith in Jesus, All right? So the first one, and these are again his, his categories, is the country club Christian. Now, if you're writing, I'd encourage you again, like this is, para, this is parentheses Christian, right? Because what we're gonna find in each one of these is there's no saving faith in, in this category that none of these six really are people who have believed the gospel. Um, and a, a country club Christian is someone who is very self-focused. They may engage, all of these are likely going to engage in some type of Christian activity, whether that is church or some type of moralistic behavior, and you'll see those as we go through, Um a country club Christian is certainly going to be someone who, at least on occasion, comes to church. They would see some value in church, but most of it is going to be relational. They, they, they are not in any way associated with the missional aspect of church. Now, when we say missional, I'm going to make sure you understand what I mean by that. Because when we say missional, we often think, oh, missionary, because they have the same root word, and they share some similarities, but we're not saying the same thing when we say missional and missionary. The mission of the church, we say, different churches say it different ways, but ultimately, it's drawn from Matthew 28, which is why we have it on the wall here, is to make disciples, right? That's the mission of the church. So we say it simply like this, the mission of Nansen River is to make disciples that make disciples. This is what we hope to do as we live obedient to Christ together as a church. Well, a country club Christian is is not focused on that. They're focused on what can the church do for me? What can the church provide for me? The church just so happens to be their preferred social club. Now they may not say it that way, but ultimately this is how they treat the body of Christ. And this is actually, was very common. We're seeing less of this now. But this was very common when Christianity and moralism was more popular uh, in American culture. If you'll remember back to last winter when I was doing that worldview study, we talked about the progression of Christianity within culture and, and how um, while academia, had, academia had, and the media had changed in the early 1900s, the early 20th century, For most of the 20th century, um, Christianity was still kind of the norm uh, and embraced as the norm, and so people attended church, even if they didn't believe it, because it was the socially acceptable thing to do. Now, that is quickly falling out of popularity and favor in our culture to where now those who attend church are in the minority, not the majority. But for a lot of America, a lot of our culture Christianity was, was very much the norm and church attendance was very much the norm. And it was seen as a place where business got done and politics happened. It was often seen, particularly in smaller towns, uh, as, as the center of activity for the community. And so that has carried over then into a mindset of at least some within our culture who just treat church as, this is the place that I go. These are the people that I network with. These are the people who occasionally may meet my needs, but I'm not really interested in meeting any of the needs of others or engaging in the mission. So this is that country club, quote unquote, Christian. They've they've confused the gospel with comfort. That that and and even with. Um, the idolization of relationship and belonging. That church is a place that you belong, not as a place that you're actually doing something and and on mission together. That they would see salvation through the avoidance of public sin. That as long as, you think about who these people may be, right? As long as I can avoid some type of public embarrassment, and, and, and you kind of pull this into the community world. You can pull this into the business world, right? So from a business standpoint, someone that would, we may categorize as this country club Christian would say, you know, I'm not embezzling at my work. I, I, I'm above board with my taxes. I treat my employees well. I treat my customers well. The other businesses that I do business with, I'm, I'm honest enough with them, Right? And so because there's no public display of sin, there's no real need of salvation anyway. Church and Christianity is just something that I kind of belong to. It's not really something that has any kind of meaningful change in my life. So then how would we get to the gospel with these people? I think he, Dean in the book here talks about three good starting points. One is and again, you may not know every one of these six categories, but I guarantee you, you know at least one. And you may know this person, even though this person, I think, wonder why I've started here. This person is less and less likely to exist in our world. Some of you live in an older or from an older generation um, that, that this probably is still applicable. It's less applicable for, for our younger generation. So For our baby boomers in the room, particularly older baby boomers in the room, you probably know some of these people. Uh, Younger millennials in the room, you likely don't know any of these people and you don't even understand how someone from your generation could view church that way. And it's okay. Um, That's just generationally different, right? But if you do know someone like this, here's a great question to ask. What is the point of church? Like, Why does church exist? And that's a good opportunity. Remember, we're, we were thinking last week about ways that we get into gospel conversations with people. Um, now, you've got to know the right answer for that, right? The church exists to be on mission of making disciples. But their answer may be the church is about networking, right? The church is about meeting some felt needs that I have. The church is about giving me a place for relationship, maybe even giving me somebody who's going to bury me when I die or marry my kids when they, you know, when they, when they grow up. What is the point of church membership? So not just the church as a whole, but why would someone actually join the church is a a great question to ask this person. Or what mission has Jesus given to the church? What does Jesus want the church to do? So someone that's treating the church as if it's a social club, do you see what the key here is to actually get them to redefine in their minds what church is? Remember, this is somebody that's likely heard the gospel for decades. If they go to a gospel preaching church, unfortunately, we have A lot of Christian churches in our culture today stopped preaching the gospel. They've just kind of given people some happy little talks along the way. And maybe all that person's ever heard is a happy little talk and, uh, you know, fill that tank up a little bit. Uh, But they've never actually heard a gospel sermon. So you may have to connect that for them. But asking questions about why, why church is, is a great transition to the gospel. And then we would want to to see a remedy for their misunderstanding of the gospel with things like what we have on the wall here. Like, obviously the answer to the questions about the church is the great commission itself. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you to the end of the age. This is an ongoing mission for the church. Why Jesus says I'm with you to the end of the age. It's why that part's important because this is a clear mission for the church that Jesus is empowering us for, right? These people, obviously it's, Their concern may be public sin, primarily for the sake of embarrassment within the community. So we would also want to draw their attention to the fact that Jesus clearly demands repentance, right? Matthew 4, 17 uh, tells us that Jesus began preaching saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That the, the clear start of the ministry of Jesus, right, began with a call to repentance. Not a call to come and just sit on the back row. That's not to throw any stones at people that choose to sit on the back row. But you know, y'all have been around church enough to understand the metaphor of the back row Baptist, right? It's important that we try to convince these, people, try to show at least scripturally that there's no such thing as the bench. Does that make sense for you? There's no such thing as people that get to sit out the mission of God Um, that get to just sit on the back row and not actually engage, that the call to faith and repentance is a call to belong to something more than just a social club. That's the first one. Second one is the Christmas and Easter Christian. You already know who these people are. This is easy, right? These are people who are sentimental about holidays with the implications of those holidays having very little impact. This is one that did not, I'm going to be careful how I say this. I was in ministry for a long time before I became a lead pastor. I knew this existed. I saw attendance at church go up. Every church that I served as a student pastor, we would see the the Christmas bump and then we would see the big Easter bump. You would always see that. It's bothered me way more now that I'm the guy preaching on on Easter. (laughs) Just say it like that. Because I am keenly aware that there are people that are in church on Christmas, particularly Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is actually supplanted Easter now in a lot of ways. Um, It's our affinity for Christmas. There's less conviction at Christmas than there is Easter. But certainly Easter, there are people in church on Easter who are there because they're this there's some type of sentimentality either in their own minds or in the minds of mom or grandma or granddad or something like that. Um, and I can pour my heart in the gospel out to these people and there's this seeming there's this brick wall that they have built. And they're like, I've got no desire to actually hear what you're saying at all. I'm just here because it is Christmas or Easter. But we know, right, that, that Christmas and Easter have incredible implications in the Christian life. We'll get to those in a second. What are, what are some, of the mis- some of the mistakes, some of the things they mistake the true gospel for? Well, one of them would be that, that observance is some type of salvific act, that we get some type of check, you know, in the good column. You know, some type of plus, you know, a sticker for showing up, and at least we showed up on Christmas and Easter. Certainly, there's this sentimentality that builds in these people, and and they feel as if they they are doing something good by coming on on Christmas and Easter. There's also a level of tradition that gets built in this this um, and and not only tradition from a family sense, but a tri- from a tradition in the sense of this becomes the gospel to them. So our family does this. And then it passes from one generation to the next. And in passing from one generation to the next, that what is communicated, even if it's not verbally communicated, because it's very likely not, but what's communicated from one generation to the next is, this is the faith of our family. Is this, we go to church on Christmas and Easter. It's, it's what, what you're supposed to do and and it supplants the gospel and true saving faith just simply by valuing that moment and not missing that moment. So the gospel conversation starting points here then pull back to the actual implications of those holidays. So if these people are in your life, around Christmas or around Easter is a great opportunity to ask a question like, you know, you could preface it like this, you know, we're celebrating Christmas. I'd love for you to come with me to our Christmas Eve service or services right around Christmas, our Advent services, right? Um, But one of the things we'll talk about is the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why do you think that matters? You see, because there's implications in the, the birth of Jesus being born of a virgin. By the way, if you don't know why Jesus was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin, that, that's definitely something that, that would be an important question for you to be able to answer, right? Is, uh, is Jesus the son of God? And, and that the scriptures point to the birth of the Messiah by, by a virgin, but, but there's, there's theological implications here, right? The, the inheriting of sin from Adam doesn't happen when... God is the Father and the Holy Spirit is the one who has come upon, come upon Mary. Um, so there, there's great implications because you wanna ask that question. You, you're coming to church on Christmas, so we're celebrating that. Well, what about Easter, right? What does it matter that Jesus rose from the grave? I would hope that in any place that actually calls themselves a church, they would proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if no other time on Easter. Now, we should proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ every time we gather the instructions of scripture. But surely we should do it on Easter. Well, why does that matter? You have to get to meaning. You have to get to implication, right? What, what's actually happening? A good intro question is, why is that holiday actually special to you beyond just tradition and sentimentality? We want to take people to the scriptures and show them, that, show them what Jesus showed the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What is it that Jesus shows the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? Do You remember? He takes them to the Old Testament and he, to the law and the prophets, we're told, and shows them how it was all about him. That it's not just, you know, Luke 2 and Luke 20. It's not just the beginning of the story and the end of the story that's about Jesus. All of it, creation, the fall, the flood, all of it, the kings, the exile, every bit of that, just pointing towards one who would come. Like all of scripture is pointing to Jesus, not just holy days, which is where we get our word holiday from, right? Um, he is the one who reconciles us to God. And, and, and there's more, there's way more to it than just kind of a sentimental version of Christianity that is the, the uh, Christmas and Easter Christian. Number three, the God and country Christian. This is the, I'm going to be careful here, but these people are out there, okay? And again, um, these people are likely of a certain generation, although that is not necessarily, that is not an exclusive truth. Um, I I see a fair bit of this in, in young people. Um, not to the extent that you necessarily see it in in others, but but there's a a fair bit of this across generational lines. These are people who would be proud to be an American above all else. There's nothing wrong with being proud to be an American, no. It's a different conversation for a different day. Um, Citizenship and pride in citizenship and social engagement aren't in and of themselves, negative bad things, okay? But the God and country Christian, this type of cultural Christian is one who would elevate American ideals over Christian ideals and likely even, because they are fairly uneducated, likely in the truths of scripture, substitute American ideals for Christian ideals. And, and, sometimes in very egregious ways, but we we start to make certain things that we hold as a, or think we hold, or used to hold as a country as some type of Christian principle that is not a a Christian principle. Uh, It sees everything through the lens of American citizenship, and the more tribal we become, we are seeing this now, I think in, in the last, Certainly, the last 20 years, certainly the last decade, but probably this goes back to the 90s, if not be, be, beyond that, sees everything through the lens of a certain political party. That, that there, is, there is only one way that people should, there's the right way to think. And, and that lens is, um, uh, you know, American Christianity but it doesn't look very much like biblical Christianity at all. There's actually some incredible blind spots to things that the scripture actually says and things that the scriptures actually say matter because they've replaced these things that the scripture says matter. And they're, they're fairly uneducated likely on what the scripture actually says. They know some proof texts, right? I'll just give you one. I'm, It'll be fine if it upset you. I'm going to preach it here soon. I'm going to say it anyway when we get to 2 Thessalonians. right? 2 Thessalonians says if a man does not work, he doesn't eat. Right? How many times have you heard someone use that as some type of proof text against the welfare and the welfare state in America? You've heard it a lot. I saw it posted on social media this week. Okay. Folks, that's not what Paul was talking about. I'll say it really clearly when we get to that part in Second Thessalonians, but know this, that has nothing to do whatsoever with social welfare, social security, safety net that we have. It, those, those two ideas could not be further from what... So to use one, that's called a proof text. When we take something in Scripture and we make it say something that proves our point that it's not actually saying... Um, those, those, now we could argue the benefits of welfare versus not, but to take that kind of scripture, right. But that, that's what this person will often do. They'll, right. Did you see the video? I don't know if you saw it or not. I'm really getting in trouble here. Um, a few weeks ago there was, um, I think it was out in Arizona. A lady got up to speak and, uh, and she quoted, I believe it was from, from first Peter, make your, m- make your election sure. Right. And this is encouragement in scripture right to look into your own life and to ask hard questions about your own life and she used that to talk about making elections like voting for people she, you want to go what what <laughs> you, no. <laughs> not anywhere not that's not anywhere close to what that's what just because the word is the same doesn't mean the words act, the meaning is actually the same right this is what this, is what this will often is great blinders to what the bible may actually say They will often mistake the true gospel for actually just being an American. Now, by the way, this isn't unique just to America. This has happened throughout history. But Americans, we've taken this in a lot of ways to to a different level. Um, And so there are people, you, you may know some, you may not, but there are people out there that think simply by birthright of being in America, we are God's nation. God's blessed nation right now, right here in this place. And because of that, that makes me inherently right with God. They would also mistake the true gospel for actually voting in a certain way. This is this is becoming more and more real in our world where people will say, you know, only Christians are going to vote X. Well, there are some biblical moral things that I think we ought to say Christians should and shouldn't support and vote for, but We've got to be really careful when we say when we start equating salvation with voting habits, whether one votes or not, or who they were, were to vote for. So what gospel conversations, how can we get to the gospel conversation with these people? A good question to start with, I love, he talks about this in this book, and, and, and you, may, you may just want to buy this book for this chapter, if, that, if, the, if these are kind of some, some of your crowd, because some of it may be. Um, a good question is, who is when, you, when somebody says we, what are they talking about? I would hope for us, when we are the most common we for me is likely the Bryce family, right? It's team Bryce. That's we. Next to that is we, Nansman River Baptist Church. Who is we to you? I'm hoping that's the same for you, that family is your first we, that sec- your second we is, is we. Like th- This is the greatest influence in, in, in discipleship and everybody's being discipled towards one thing or another. The great, so the greatest influence in discipleship in your life is this "we" right here, right? So, who is "we" to you, right? Is a good, good question. And then it, it's a great transition into well, who are the "we's" of the Scripture. How would you explain your faith to someone from a different country, or with a different political bent? Because what we may find is. What that person may find by answering that question is they don't, right, faith has to be able to span demographics, it has to be able to span, you know, man-made borders, it has to be able to, to ex, ex, you know, expand over all of these things. We ought to be able to communicate the gospel with anybody, and if our gospel is so wrapped up in worldly citizenship and one specific way of thinking, then what we've believed in is a false gospel, not, not one that is for the entire world. So what's the remedy then? The remedy is to call them towards a correct sense of identity. Think about what Paul writes in Galatians 3. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I can imagine somebody were to stand up and say, I, I think this church is biblically mature enough that, that I could make a statement like, that in Christ there is no American or Mexican. There is no Canadian or England, right? And and y'all y'all are like, okay, that, that jives with the scripture. But there are probably pastors lose their job. They get up to say something like that. And that's exactly what Paul's saying, though, isn't it? Like they, none of those things that... Are so defining for us. Think about what these things are like Jew or Greek, flee or slave, male or female. Like all of these are like defining characteristics. And he says, in light of our relationship with Christ, all of those things take a back seat. What, what is our main identity? And then when, really, where is our true citizenship? First Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness in a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you've received mercy, but now you have, once you had not received mercy, but how, now you have not received mercy. That is not talking about America. That's talking about the church of God. And our citizenship is somewhere else. We are now a holy nation. That, that spans borders and times and ethnicities and people groups and languages. Praise God for that. So we need to help people see there's more to Christianity than simply this, you know, some American ideals that have been wrapped up in a Christian package because of, of the, the long-standing relationship of our country with those Christian ideals. Number four. This is kind of the, in our politically charged climate, this is probably the other end of the spectrum, but it's worth mentioning. This is the liberal social justice Christian. These are the people who feel strongly about specific social justice issues, probably some of which are biblical and some of which that previous group has blinders to, probably does not want to see at all. And some of which are not biblical at all. Okay? So that, that's not to say I, I think it's important to note. I think we oftentimes paint with too big of a too broad of a brush. Some social justice issues are biblical issues. And some social justice, like I'm talking about our world right here today, some social justice issues are biblical issues, and some social justice issues are not. And by the way, the church ought to have some issues that aren't embraced by some social justice people out there in, in the world. Um, and we're not, maybe not as vocal about those things as, as we should be. But this is who the liberal social justice Christian is the one who feels very strongly about these social issues and are often willing to compromise biblical teachings for the culture. I mean, we see this, right? This is, this is gaining steam and momentum in our world. They believe societal change can come through activism or even legislation, right? That we can somehow legislate. This is what Christians held to for a very long time. Um, Christians tried to legislate morality in the United States. And you know what we learned, right? You can't do it. You can't legislate sin out of people. It's impossible, right? Um, What we tried to do in the modern era is what... um, liberal social justice people are attempting to do in the postmodern era. By the way, they're going to fail at it. We failed at it. They're, they're going to fail at it. Why? Because you can't legislate people into any kind of behavior, whether we would deem it right behavior or wrong behavior. You're, you're not going to get people there by telling them they have to, they have to do something. All right? We're seeing that play out on like 100 different fronts in our world right now. I'm not going to give an example. Um, so where, where's the gospel mistaken here? Well, the gospel is, is mistaken, is replaced with activism, Uh, you know, advocating for social or political causes that, that there's actually seen some type of salvific effect in I'm, I'm speaking up for. And what will happen is they'll go to places in scripture that they really like, like, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me, right? The words of Jesus, which are really important words, maybe some words that previous group has blinders to, but think by doing what Jesus said, giving people a cup of water, giving people food, meeting these kind of social needs, that by doing those things, we're somehow earning our right place with God. And we're not, right? It's just another form of, of, of you know, works-based salvation. These people are gonna have some very different favorite Bible verses than the God and country Christian, but they're going to use them in the same exact way. I, I think I used this as an example a long time ago in, in a sermon. Um, I was reading the New York Times, uh, a New York Times editorial piece about what I don't even remember now. Um, I can't even remember the subject, but this has stuck with me and it's stuck, it'll stuck with me for the rest of my life. And uh, this guy was was integrating, it had something, the, obvious, I, the reason I was reading the New York, it had something to do with religion. Um, and so I was reading it and, and the guy made this case for being what he called a Sermon on the Mount Christian. Um, and he was just convinced like, this is the kind of Christian. What I need to be a Sermon on the Mount Christian? You can just and not as in to say, hey, the Sermon on the Mount is this kingdom ethic ideal, which is what it is, uh, that we should all strive for and and recognize that a changed life lives differently. No, that we should actually just do what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and forget everything else. That's, that's what he was advocating. For. And although first off, he hasn't read the Sermon on the Mount really closely, because there's some like <laughs> some really like countercultural things in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but number two, if all that does is take some things of Jesus that people like to hear and turn them into a, a work that somebody can do to then feel better about themselves or even credit for salvation. So what do we want to do? We want to ask questions like who or what can save us from our sins? Because if we're convinced that activism or good works can't save us from our, you know, you could, you could go out and give a million cups of water to a million poor people, and you'll have done good in the eyes of the world. You'll have even done things that Christians should be doing as commanded in Scripture. But that giving of water is not going to save anyone. Questions like who or what is the ultimate authority for truth? Remember, these people are very willing to sacrifice biblical truth for the sake of the culture. So we have to ask questions like, we have to ask authority questions. The ultimate remedy here is for them to see that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, not the whims of culture. And that compromising biblical truth for culture or to use a buzzword now for tolerance sake is not actually loving at all. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. There's There's a direct connection between truth and love. Now, unfortunately for some within the modern American church, we've dropped off the in love part and we just idolize speaking the truth, meaning we think we'd just be jerks to people and we can't, right? The the answer to wrong thinking and wrong action is not more wrong thinking and wrong action, right? Speak the truth in love That, that we have to recognize that that Truth is not this nebulous thing, but it's found in the word of God. Number five, this one I know you have. I know they're in your family. I know they're in your, on your neighborhood. This one is everywhere. This is the good guy next door Christian. The, uh, I forget who coined this term. Dean uses it in this book, but he didn't coin the term but it's the moral therapeutic, it's called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. It's this, it's really kind of a brand new, not brand new as in like today, but brand new within the last couple of decades view of God. And here's what moral therapeutic deism or the good guy next door kind of Christian says, right? This person believes that God wants people to be generally good, and to be kind to one another. They don't see the specifics of Christianity or the specifics of the Bible as really relevant, but that God in general, whether it's the God of the Bible, the God of the Quran, the God of Eastern religions, the God of whatever you've made up in your mind, generally wants two things, you to be good and you to be kind. They want you to be moral and therapeutic. And that God in the main wants you to be happy, right? And so you kind of just live your, hap- you know, what whatever's going to make you happy. Not holy, but happy is, is really what you need to kind of strive for and live for. These people are often very easy to get along with, right? Because their goal in life is really to just be a decent. That's a better word, I think, than good. A decent human being, right? I just want to be a decent person. I want to be kind to people. I don't want to steal from people. I'll help my neighbor, right? Something's something's wrong at the house. Like this guy will come over and help you. You need somebody to watch the kids. This lady will come over and help you because that's kind of the ideal of life is to be good and to do good things, Clearly, what they've mistaken for the true gospel here is behavior, civility. Even seeing possibly, if you were to really kind of dig down, seeing the possibility of removal of bad with good. That in a lot of ways, when we talk about Islam, we're gonna see some actual significant similarities between moral therapeutic deism and Islam. Now, there's some differences too. Um, But Islam, if you were to boil it down, is a religion of the scales. Is my good outweighing my bad? Now, Islam has a whole system built on how to make sure your good outweighs your bad. More therapeutic deism doesn't have that system. It's kind of an internal clock or internal counter that people have where they're just like, man, I did three good things today. And may, they will not say it like that, or, but that's really what's going on. Right? They, I did three good things, but, you know, I kind of yelled at the kids when I came in. So that's eh, one bad, but I did three good, one bad. I'm, you know, I've still got, I'm still in the black, you know, versus being in the red. So we want to ask questions to get to the gospel with these people, something like, are people generally good or bad? That's a great question to ask people, but I mean, you, you'll get, you'll get right to what somebody believes. And here's, and I know I say this from the pulpit often, because I think this is pervasive in our culture, maybe even on Sunday morning, somewhat pervasive, even in the crowd that we may have here, um, it is, um. People don't want to think about themselves as being bad. They're fine of thinking of like Hitler as being bad. They're maybe even fine about thinking about certain people in our culture that may be on another political spectrum or some type of uh, social economic spectrum. And you think, okay, well, those people are bad. But they don't want to think about themselves as being bad, their families as being bad, their neighbors as being bad, their friends being bad. Friends as being bad. We, people are generally good in their minds, right? But we know what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches. People aren't generally good at all. Um, a good, another good question is, what happens after death? Again, there's no system here, right? This is all an internal clock and an internal counter. But many of most of these people, because we're in this Western American culture that has all of these tentacles of Christianity in it, most of them will affirm something like heaven. Most of them will affirm something like angels. Angels. I mean, this is Oprah Winfrey to a T, okay? And people like that. I mean, that, this is what this is. I've just, they just kind of made stuff up as they've gone. They've pulled from here and they've pulled from here and they've kind of made this thing that they think works for them. Okay, what, what happens after death? Oh, you, you go to heaven. Well, who goes to heaven? Right? Well, certainly they're going to go, right? The people they love is going to go. That's what they would say. Good people. Okay, well then how good is good enough to actually go to heaven, right? Are you good enough to go to heaven? I'm not good enough to, on my own, right? But that's what we would want to do with people is, is get them to the point of recognizing the inconsistencies in, well, if I just am good enough and kind enough, and, and that's really what all religions are kind of teaching anyway. What you got to show people is that there is only one God, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Right? (laughs) That verse tells us two things. One, there is only one God and there is only one way to him, Jesus. He is the only mediator. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I say those words at every single funeral I preach. I won't preach a funeral if I don't get to say those words because I know at funerals, Every funeral I have ever preached, unless it has just been this really small, and in COVID, some of them have been, really small, like tight-knit group of family that I know everybody, and they're all professing believers in Christ. I am convinced this kind of person comes to funerals because they want to honor the good person, right? And so here's what I want that person to, see, to hear from me very clear. There is one God, and there is one way to him, and it's through Jesus Christ alone. You would also want to th- contrast things like happiness and holiness. What is God really calling us to? Is God calling us to be happy or is God calling us to be holy? And and what's really the point of holiness? Holiness, the point of holiness is, is obedience to God, right? It, it's that we're called to holiness because of what Jesus has, has done for us. It finally... I mean, ultimately, you got to get to this. If we could be good enough, like if that internal ticker actually worked, was even possible to work, then the Bible says Christ's death was absolutely meaningless. Galatians 2 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could be saved under any other way, then Jesus dying was meaningless. So we're calling people to, to really deal with the inconsistencies of their of that profession. The last one is the Bible belt Christian. There's less of this here than other places my family has lived. There's some of it here. Still lingering around. Um, mainly, I would say, rural parts of, uh, our, of our state. Um, certainly the further south you go from here, you see you still see a lot of this. There are displays within the Bible Belt Christian of external form of religiosity. That they they want to do some things and maybe even say some things that sound crazy. These people probably know the answers. They could probably beat a lot of us in Bible drill, okay? Like they they know and can do some of these things. But... They would even be offended by the idea of atheism. They, they would be in shock that someone could not believe in God. But Jesus has had little to no impact on their life at all. They know the right things to say. They tell you the right things. They may even, from a moralistic standpoint, do many of the right things. But there's been no real life change at all. The things they mistake for the true gospel are things like familiarity with the Bible, Christian practice, religious heritage. These these are the people who I'm convinced fill church pews every single week, week in and week out across, across America, but specifically across the American Southeast. These people fill the pews, but but there's no real life change that's ever happened. There's no actual impact of the gospel being brought to bear. It is all about heritage and culture, And, and this is what you do. This is almost like the Christmas and Easter Christian on steroids. There's probably also a lot of overlap between here, this, and the because there is certainly overlap. Dean talks about this a little bit. There's certainly overlap in some of these things. Probably some overlap here with the God and country Christian as well. So how do we have gospel conversations with them? We ask just pointed questions about why are you actually hesitant to surrender your life to Jesus? You know, what, what would be the result of you choosing, the end result of you choosing to live your own way versus living Jesus? There's a call to obedience as the pathway to joy. Showing people that holding on to sin without repentance leaves, ultimately leaves one separated by God. And that holiness is, is for our good. The radical change of the gospel has this deep impact in our lives, and it and it ultimately does that sanctifying work of ridding us of sin and, and calling us towards Christ-likeness. So here's, here's what I hope you've seen today. I, I recognize I've tried to be gracious while also being pointed because I realize I'm, I'm speaking directly into our culture. And if I get pointed in future weeks over things like Islam or uh, Hinduism, you're, you, you may stand the risk of being less offended. It may be that you got offended on behalf of a friend today. Um, and that's okay. I, I want you to understand my, my goal is not to be offensive. The goal is to, to show that the, these are not, this is not Christianity. And, and we don't get to be, by the way, your pastor, our church, our elder, we don't get to be the final arbiter of what is and is not Christianity, which is why the appeal to the authority of God's word, Right? And so it's important for us to be rooted and grounded in the fact that that there are certain things that the Bible teaches make someone a Christian. That that to call upon the name of the Lord, to be saved, to to repent and believe in the gospel, that this is essential for Christian faith. And without that, there is no Christianity. And so I want to... end where I began and make that abundantly clear. I'm not trying to be the arbiter and and look at somebody in in a seat of judgment and say, well, you're not a Christian, but you are, and you're not a Christian, but you are. But I think the Holy Spirit does that for us through the scriptures. And our goal then in the life, as we interact with these people, is to see them freely for what they are. And that is a lost person in need of salvation. And, And then our responsibility changes from us trying to correct moral behavior to us actually saying, believe the gospel and be saved, which is why I wanted to start here. And then we'll kind of move away from things a little more closely, close, some people maybe a little more close to us, even though many of us are going to end up having these people in our lives at some point or, uh, or another, okay? So if there's one of these or more that were challenging to you, come talk to me. Certainly recommend this book. It's easy, easy to read. It's not real long, big print. Those are great. Let me pray to close this. Father, thank you for um, saving us. We realize our works can't do it. Our birthright here is that American citizens can't do it. Uh, Church attendance can't do it. Uh, But Jesus dying on the cross in our place did. And our salvation is secure in that. And we thank you for that reality that is applied to the lives of the believers in this room. Help us, God, to be obedient to your command to make disciples, even if that means having hard questions with loved ones and friends and family members who have bought into some modified version of the Christian message that is not actually what the Bible says is how someone can come to faith in Jesus and be made right with you. So help us in that. Give us courage in boldness in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. For those that joined us online, thank you for joining us. We'll see you back here. Um, hopefully Sunday for Praise and Go Sunday, my favorite Sunday of the year. This Sunday, be here. It's gonna be great. We're gonna get to hear what's going on in Philly. We're gonna hear what's going on in East Africa. Really good stuff. Um, so even if you're online with us, we'd love to have you join us online on Sunday. And then we'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30. Thank you for being here. God bless you.